Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Books Boys, live from the Grand Library. The Dean and EJ. He's PJ. Hello there. I'm the Dean and we are the Books Boys. The one and only. This is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it? Books. Books. We're joined by little Alfred. There he is. There he is. So it's Books Boys, PJ, because there are multiple books and multiple boys. We have two There's... boys and a bear. How many books oh. do we have? I, we got, we got a All bit books. more than three. I can tell you that. <laughs> we got a lot of books. A the lot books. of books. What's it all about, Dean? You know, books. That's, you know, I think... How long have we been speaking about books now? It's been. It has been one year exactly. It's the one year, <sighs> the one year anniversary show. Oh my god! Anniversary time. Wow. Okay. Oh my god, that's crazy, guys. So we've been one year to get talking about books. Now I know it's about paper, but I'm still not. I'm still finding myself going to the, you know, super value, and looking so- at the toilet paper section and looking for Orwell. How many difficulty finding Orwell? You can't get them there, man. I don't know. It's this kind of thing, right? Scrolls. I've got some papers here that I can it's write paper. on. Is is this books? I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's newspapers. I, I, I just look as it's still a mystery, but I hope you're starting to get in a vague platonic idea of what a book might platonically look like. The, the platonic form, the the perfect book. It exists out there in the in the realm of platonic uh, beings. You know exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and not only is it our one year anniversary episode um it's halloween to, literally today we're recording on halloween spooky so everyone pause the show no don't do that after the show go and uh, watch some uh, freddy krueger you know spooky and read some spooky books as well spooky books i have a really good spooky recommendation later oh, and, yeah. and pj i've been i've been inundating you with pictures of my myriad halloween costumes this year yeah. Indeed, you have. It's been very exotic. All from, oh, what, what, is, what was it again? From the Little Red Riding Hood to. I was a devil. I was Little Red Riding Hood. I was Antonio Banderas from Desperado. I liked that one. That was good. Yeah, you've been all over the place sending me all these pictures. Good Lord. And I was and also I think... posing with a pumpkin in, in a forest at one point. I, I don't know, on a hay bale. I'm, I'm a busy man. <laughs> Indeed. We are just talking about that Dean has recently joined. He's, he's a very proactive, he'd be very, he'd be very suitable in an Athenian society where they just indulge themselves in all kinds of activities. I believe you've been indulging yourself in the Irish Orwell Society, Dean. 
joining yes, and talking I, about I, I, I took some some classes. I'm still still doing a 10-week course on Orwell. The course is called Orwell in Ireland, well, but we realized that he didn't really do anything with Ireland. So it's now just become minute <laughs> details about Orwell's life, you know. Maybe it's one trip to Dublin explaining great detail. And I believe you've also joined the the Oldster University Skiing Society and your painting. So I just imagine painting reading and, a book, yeah, painting, everything. skiing, skiing over the place, yeah. I'm well, skiing down the slopes whilst painting and reading and making music and everything we're re- all at once. We're, so. we're reading Orwell specifically and trying to try to find this Irish connection. I like it. Yeah, there's, there's not. Well, his one of his wives was Irish, but he never talked about it. So having a class about Orwell in Ireland, there's, there's, there's not much to go on. It's unfortunate. But man, we're going to talk about some books. Oh, and we should mention briefly, um, we actually saw each other in person this month. We did indeed. We did indeed. We did some and Halloween suit- activities. And the back of your car was literally full of Orwell books. That's the whole... <laughs> well, it was. It was literally full of Orwell books. I didn't know he even read. I wrote that much. So he only wrote yeah. six notes. It was full of it. Uh, and it was... Altogether, he's got nine plus stories and essays and a lot. He wrote a lot, actually. Um, but yeah, we saw each other and we took a lot of wacky photos. So they're all going to be up on Instagram soon. These um, very, very posing photos, everyone. If you want to see some mm-hmm. interesting photos. Risque, maybe. Huh? Yes, indeed. <laughs> In font terrible photos. Well, let's let's start, PJ. The first the first book I read this month. I, well, this, I don't know why this is not a surprise. It's Orwell. Oh my uh, god, it's Orwell. It's Burmese Days. Have you heard of this one? Even you might not have. I've I've heard of the title, but I don't know what's about. Is it is it uh, journalism, or is it a novel? It's a novel. So a lot of Orwell's novels, some of some some of them are a bit more journalistic. This oh. one is fictional, but it is. Oh. You know, so he did have some real Burmese days, you know, like he went over to okay. Burma as a, as a police officer. And um, so oh, yes. it is kind of there's some realism in it, but it is a fictional story. And um, this one, okay. essentially what happens is, it, sorry, guys, I know that we got a lot of listeners in England. Um, this is an anti-British Empire uh, book, essentially. So oh, you know, it, it's effectively, you know, he's over there and they're all working and some of them are officers and some of them are just working for private companies. Um but the attitudes that they have, like towards the locals, like the natives, you know, they, they treat them like dirt. They, 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 they insult them. And, and, you know, it really gives you an idea about the way the British Empire worked. And it's really quite depressing at times. And bits of it can be, can be difficult to read just with like rampant racism and hatred, to be honest. And, but he's exposing it, which is, which is good, you know. Wow. Okay. And yeah. it's, it's that, that's his first novel, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's not his very first one, I don't think, but it's an early one. I'm reading them all, but I'm reading them all out of order. Um, okay. It might be his first one, actually, I don't know. But I've read that one, and so I'll give you a bit of an, an idea of the story. So there's this chap called Yupo Kin, and he's a local, but he's managed to get himself a little, not a governorship, but a kind of some, some kind of position of power amongst the locals. Um, but he's just corrupt. Um, and there's a bit that says the way he does his corruption is he takes a bribe, from both sides and then decides the case on purely legal grounds so as to be impartial but he takes bribes from both sides anyway so he's just making money left right and center and he's just this big you know beast fat guy who's you know just sitting scoffing the food with his hands and raking in money and just corruption and you know but um he there's this doctor called dr Vereshwamy, and he really wants to join this club of white people because he believes that they they both want to join but for different reasons 
And they believe that this will kind of boost their social standing, you know? So, the, so then Yupo Kim, the official, decides to discredit the doctor um, in order to, to get himself recognized by the, the, the white people who are running the empire effectively. Because all he cares about is not even money, but just like status and fame. And he just wants to like improve his own standing. But all the while, he has a wife who's giving him all this... Um, why are you such a nasty man, essentially? Like, why, why are you all, everything you want to do is morally corrupt? And of course, it's an Orwell book, so it's sad that in the end, he manages to corrupt the wife, you know? Um, right. And the voice of reason is, is gone. Do you know, there's a really interesting thing about these Orwell books. They're all very different settings, um, but they're all very, very the same as well. Okay. You know, if they are Orwellian, you know, and, and they have those same threads running through them. And it, so the themes, yeah. Yeah, and the way he has his characters, I always... I always like his characters because even though some of them are really not good people, they, you think that they're trying and they always notice that the world around them isn't right. And that's sometimes how I feel in the world. So I, I empathize with them a little bit, you know. Like the classic 1984, but this is a more historical or, or let's just say a journalist aspect rather than a dystopian fantastic yeah. one. Okay. I'll give you a couple of quotes, ideas about the way they treat the, the locals. So there's a guy, they're, 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 the locals are usually working like as their servants and things, you know, and they're complaining, you know, oh, in the old days, you didn't have to pay them as much. And, uh, you know, in the old days, you could just beat them. And nowadays, there's all these rules, you know, and it's un- unfair for us poor rich white people to have to follow rules and not beat our servants, you know. And they say, the, the only way I can even keep a servant nowadays is to pay their wages several months late. You know, it's the only way I can manage, you know, <laughs> not, not thinking this poor chap's not getting his wages you know it's just a disregard the lack of humanity because obviously very influenced by um naturalism and that late late 19th century novels like Amizola mm-hmm. that basically they show realism the gritty side of realism everyone everything going down the drains realism and uh, Orwell did say actually he said in um why I write he said that he wanted to write enormous, enormous naturalistic novels with unhappy endings. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And that he said that the first book, uh, that, that Burmese Days was rather that kind of book. So it is. And it's one that, you know, Orwell wasn't happy with a lot of his early books, um, but he did, right. he did accept this one. So, some, some of them he wanted to take out of print. Like, you know, even we reviewed before, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, which I love. He thought it was garbage. (laughs) He didn't want to print it. And The Clergyman's Daughter, which I haven't read yet, you know, he actually stopped that being printed for a while. And then eventually he said, well, when he was dying, like, well, someone might make a bit of money off it. So I guess he can print it. But, you know, it's it's garbage. Wow, Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. He was only ever, to be honest, I think he was really only happy with the two famous ones, with Animal Farm in 1984, to be honest. And those are the only two that he was really happy, you know, thrilled about. Wow, well, some of were our worst critics, so I can understand. Yeah, um, but there's a, a lot of this stuff, there's a part where they actually say, you know, they're complaining about, about the Indians and the natives, and they say, you know, one day we'll show them, one day we'll leave, and then what will they do without us? So, I don't know, be, be free and, and not have, not be controlled? I don't know, but they have this idea that they're there to improve, but the main character, Flory, he knows they're not, and he keeps saying to, to the doctor, Vereshwami, who he's friends with, he keeps saying, we're doing bad things here. I, and I accept that, but if we would at least be honest about it, you know, we're, we're, we're telling this lie that we're here to like improve the lives of the natives and we're not, we're just robbing them. And, you know, he just can't deal with like the hypocrisy of, of the world around him. He's like, look, if we're going to do bad things, we can at least admit it. You know, that's kind of his, so he's not, he's not a hero, but he's, he's doing, trying to do something, you know? Wow. Okay. 
Um, and there's a love story because like, every book needs a little love story. Um, and he meets oh, this so girl. Yeah. yeah, he meets this girl. Um, but you know, Elizabeth, she she's really. He likes her because she's basically the only young, pretty girl there. So it's a pretty easy choice. Um, and she's so cold with him. You know, she, she wants him to be this macho, manly guy that he's not. And, but he's friends with some of the locals. You know, he's friends with the Indian doctor, Vereshwami. And he gets a lot of stick from the other white people for, being fr- for, for not being racist, essentially, um, and for trying to be a good guy. And she finds this so repulsive that she, she, she falls out of love with him. She's like, I can't, you know, she wouldn't even speak to him. And there's a horrible scene where he falls off a horse and he's hurt and he's bleeding and he's half mangled, fallen off this horse. And he calls out to her and she just ignores him. She doesn't care. Because, she, you know, he's not who she thought he was. He's, he's not a bad person, essentially. So she just snubs him and doesn't care if he lives or dies almost, you know? Wow. Okay. So it's, it's sad, actually, in, in parts. Um, but your chap, you, you, you poke in. He actually tries to orchestrate a revolution so that he can then come in and stop his own revolution and look like a hero. Oh, wow. um, but, the, but the real hero is Flory. Flory is, is the only... He's not a hero, sorry, I said before, but he's the only good person, really, you know, in the yeah. book. Or he's the only person trying, you know. Um, and it's, in part, it's, it's a really addictive book. And it's a short book. It's only a couple hundred pages. And I read it very, very quickly. Um, and it's, it's an addictive one. But just the attitudes of the, of the locals are, are bad. There's not, a lot of a, there's not a lot of a story, really. It's more just, you know, he's struggling with the world around him, with the empire. And then there's this re- little revolution. And that's, that's more or less it, you know. So it's a portrait of Burma in those times, as it was the British Empire. And I suppose he was very influenced by, you know, that, you know, British literature has a, a series of writers who are also travelers and critics of their own British empire. I mean, you've got Joseph Conrad, who is Polish, but he wrote in English and really criticized particularly mm. imperialism partic- around the world, but in English, but more specifically, you've got Somerset Maugham, you know, he, he, the great short story writer. I, I loved his work when I was mm. a teen, writing these little short stories that always portrayed kind of white privileged classes yeah. and how like how they're kind of abusing the natives and how how out of contact they are how disconnected they are with them but also with themselves and how the british empire is just and it's just stagnant you know at that point this was written in the 30s and somerset mon is also right in 2030s it just mm. becomes very stagnant this british emperor very it's time to let it go <clears throat> you get this feeling before the second world war that i love authors were trying to say this yeah. And from, from doing the Orwell classes, I mean, the interesting thing about Orwell is he, he was against, I don't know if he was against the empire per se, but he definitely knew that like change was needed, you know, yeah. um, up, on, up until the Second World War started. And then he became, you know, he kept saying, we've got to stop the war effort. Like this is, you know, he was really, really against it. He was really anti-war. Um, and then as soon as the war started, he just flipped and became like a patriot and wanted to help, you know. But I, I suppose if you think that you're at, at that can happen if you feel that you're at risk, like, you know, then, then you, you, you might become a patriot, I guess. I don't know. Mm, interesting. But there's a chap I love called Verrill and he's a military officer and he just goes around on, on the nicest horses and, you know, orders everyone around and he's right. Elizabeth eventually falls in love with him um, instead of poor Flory because uh, Flory's not, you know, the only time she really cares about Flory is when he, he takes her hunting and it's a horrible scene where they're just killing these poor animals, you know, and it's a lot of the stuff doesn't hold up today, actually. But, um, the guy Verrill, he's the sort of chap who just, he's sitting reading his newspaper, you know, and you come over to him and you ask him something and he, say, he says, 
um, things like, you know, my, my, my good chap, when someone gives me lip, I kick their bottom. Do you want your bottom kicked? Okay, if not, you know, go away and I'll go back to my newspaper. You know, there's a lot of this kind of like posh British stuff, which, which I always find humorous. That's one of my favorites, right. uh, favorite, you know, forms of humor. But <laughs> it's good. And then I moved on and I read this one. Uh, have you heard of this one? Coming up for air. I haven't heard that one. So mm. what's that about? Is that also Sim- by Orwell? It's another Orwell one. It's I think it's less than 200 pages. Like these are short books by Orwell. You know, they're not, they're, this isn't uh, Dickens. But you know what? What's funny? You know the trick, right? The Anna Karenina trick of inserting a 700 page uh, farming manual. It's, it's a classic. Well, Orwell makes a mistake of doing that trick in a book that's less than 200 pages long. He introduces 50 pages about fishing. And Lord, okay. that's not ideal. You know, if you've got 800 pages to play with, you can do that. You can do the Dostoevsky method and put a 100 page, you know, religious <laughs> narrative or whatever. But if you've only got like 180 pages, you can't be using 50 of them about fishing. Oh, no. He was obviously too inspired and wanted to do the same thing. Oh, he was. And the fishing manual. This one is no plot, actually. Um, it's oh, this. No. But again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a microcosm. It's a picture of someone's life. Yeah. And he's unhappy with the world around him. And it has the fear of the coming war. You know, it's typical, you know, you get it in 1984 and everything, but it's always this, this fear of the society and the war that's coming and this kind of thing. Um, the chap, he, he, he fought in World War I, but he, he was in the, a, a team that did nothing. They sent him to a, on a beach somewhere and forgot about him. And he's there by himself with this one old, disgruntled old soldier that he doesn't talk to. And he just reads books and thinks like, oh, this war is not so bad. Like, you know, I'm not doing anything. Like, they just sent him to an outpost in a team that didn't, he says, this, this team doesn't even exist. Like, they've put me in a regiment that doesn't exist. I'm getting paid. and I'm just chilling, you know. Um, okay. But he's afraid of World War II. And he's afraid of Hitler. And he's afraid of Stalin and all this kind of stuff, you know. And he has a friend who's a, a literary sort of chap and he sits around, you know, pipe and slippers kind of kind of chap. And he keeps saying, oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Hitler, Stalin now, they're just copying the Greeks and the Romans. And you can't get any conversation out of him that doesn't go back to the Greeks and the Romans. Um, and, but, but because of that, despite all of his intelligence, he doesn't see the actual upcoming threat. And that's, that's what's curious. Um, but this poor chap, George, all he does, he's not a nice, all these Orwell guys, they're not, they're not nice chaps. The only redeeming thing is that I, I empathize with them because they see something wrong in the world, you know? Yes, all right. But so they all, hold, they all hold that in common, right? They all have it, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but this guy's not likable. I mean, he's cheating on his wife. He's doing all this kind of stuff. He wants to kill his wife at one point, actually. He says, for the, I don't know why I married her. And for the first few years, I seriously thought about killing her. Um, but then afterwards, I just behold her. He, he, he doesn't talk to her enough to really under, get to know her. So he just, he's always curious, like, what are these women doing? Like, I don't, I just don't get them, you know? And it's, it's really weird. You know, he, he went from hating her to just being curious about her. But he always says, like, oh, she's not intelligent. She lost her looks, whatever else, you know. And her and her friends go to these talks. And he says, oh, they don't understand a word of the talks. They're just, you know going because they think they're supposed to or whatever he's very very negative on her and then he disappears for a few days to to you know he wants to go fishing that all he all he ever wants to do is go fishing but the sad part is he never goes fishing all right okay so that's the tragedy yeah he just wants to but he he never has the time he went fishing when he was 15 he's never been since and you know he just really wants to go fishing again (laughs) and and everyone says oh grown man fishing that's such a stupid such a stupid idea you know so is that is that what it's about basically so it talks about fishing the whole time in an abstract sense but nothing ever happens it's just him dreaming about what was more or less more yeah. time and he goes away for a few days and he goes back to see the town he grew up in 
because he, he describes there's a big fishing narrative and there's another big narrative where he talks about his childhood days and you know he grew up and you know very traditional his dad owned a little shop and the profits were getting worse and worse but his dad kept saying well things will look up presently and he you know he, he never realized oh no the big shop down the street is going to put us out of business you know he just stuck with his old world you know i've ran this little shop for 50 years and it's always been here and we'll keep doing it but it just gets less and less and less profitable as as time goes on and it was a shop that sold like just bird seed and that was it like i, I don't know how that's a very profitable business but you know and then the mum, you know she says you know she's, she never leaves the house there's parts of the house she's not even been in you know she's just like i'm in the kitchen all day i'm cooking and, and that's literally it and he thinks, you know, but I had a, it wasn't so bad those days. And he looks at the world around him now and it's all different. And so he goes back to the town of his youth. And of course, it's all changed. It's become a modern city. There's factories and there's workers and it's all different. And he's, he's sad because all he wants to do is recapture something. And he goes and he can't. And he doesn't even tell his wife where he's going. He lies and he's going somewhere else. So she thinks he's having an affair. And he's just kind of like, well, you know, she catches me, whatever. Like sometimes I, she's always, she's always suspicious that I'm having an affair. Sometimes she's right. Sometimes she's wrong. You know, <laughs> he doesn't really seem to mind. But it's All right, but it doesn't sound as captivating of a book. As in, in a way, in a way it's not. Um, but there's mundane details that, that really let you, Orwell's good at letting you see how depressing the society is, you know, okay, and he, ta- he talks about just their dingy little houses and, you know, their salaries and everything. And everyone's the same, a row of houses where essentially every person in it's just the same, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the sad thing is none of them even own the houses because there was some kind of scam where they ended up buying their own houses on like a really weird loan thing. So, so essentially they're, they're paying them off and paying them off, but they never own them, you know? So would you, uh, do you see a connection between Dickens and Orwell's? Yeah, I think that there are some connections. Um, obviously it's a different type of society and, and Orwell yeah, isn't, yeah. you know, he doesn't do those like almost comically over the top characters that Dickens does, yeah. but, but you see the depression in the society and you, you know, yeah. there is that similarity, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Orwell, I also actually read some Orwell essays and one was in defense of Dickens because around that time, Orwell helped repopularize Dickens. Um, around that time, Dickens was seen as a bit of a silly author, actually. And Orwell wrote this massive essay in praise of how good Dickens really is and actually helped like re- repopularize him. Well, so there you go. So obviously he did uh, find... You know, he, he obviously was inspired by Dickens. And as you say, he does mention naturalist novels. So what, there was other novels that came after Dickens, turning realism, going one step further, going really into detail. But yeah. yeah. But the honest answer is almost nothing happens in this in this book. You know, if I'm being really honest, they they talk a lot about fishing and, he you know, he goes back to the town. That's the only real plot point. And, and you know, nothing even happens when he does go back to the town. He just gets drunk a lot. You know, his wife sits around reading Hilda's Home Companion and sort of thinking, you know, I'll here's how to do things around the house. And and, and he looks down on her for it. But he never attempts to help her either. You know, he, he always says, well, she's got no hobbies. She's got no interest. That's her problem. But he doesn't try to help her. He just kind of looks at her like a curiosity. You know, he doesn't try to make any connection with his wife, which is really strange. Okay, okay. Interesting. But so the fishing is always like a metaphor for something idyllic, something that is different, something that is not the present. Oh, yeah, Stalin and Hitler just around the corner. He tries to get away. So it's escapism. Yeah. And he has kids that he has no interest in either. He's just like, ah, these kids, you know, whatever. He he doesn't care. You know, he's just not interested at all. It's interesting to read the book because it was published in June 1939. So it'd be interesting to read it as a, like, what did people think? feel just before the war ends are escalating mm. 
and what escape and there, he's going to have. And then, of course, the line coming up for air appears. And the idea is that he just feels so stuffy and so bogged down in this world that isn't right, and he wants to come up for air. And he says, but there isn't any air. And he's wow. like, we, we are in the dystopia, basically. That's, that's what he's saying. You know, he's like, I want to come up for air, but there isn't any. We're living in a garbage place, you know? Wow. And it's, it hit me as like, yeah, that is also true. You know? so, <laughs> wow. um, and he, he wants to escape, though. So I'll read a quote here. He says, he's talking about all these nosy parkers and everyone's, you know, not minding their own business. And he says, the Home Secretary, Scotland Yard, the Temperance League, the Bank of England, Hitler, Stalin on a tandem bicycle, a bench of bishops, Mussolini, the Pope. They're all after me. He feels that the whole society, the whole world is chasing him. There's a chap who thinks he's going to escape. There's a chap who thinks he won't be streamlined, you know, but he wants to escape. And he just feels that the whole world is just always crowding in on him and, and he can't escape, you know? powerful reading yeah but it's i i massively recommend orwell to to anyone to be honest he's he's brilliant and the short books they're very accessible i i recommend 1984 to someone on, a, on an almost daily basis because yeah, <laughs> anytime someone says anything about modern life i'm like have you read 1984 though <laughs> so it's very it's also like, it always talks about relevant themes that especially the other ones that are not 1984 coming up for air or Burmese days which are made more historical now but they're all related to the fact that society needs to change, that he's always trying to say, look, this is not working society. I'm showing you the present. I'm showing you what could happen in the future as a metaphor. I'm showing you with, with like a fairy tale, like with Animal Farm. He's always, he's always criticizing and making sure that people are not blinded, right? So he's trying to, he's trying to basically lead the people into what he thinks is a more conscious and criti- a society that criticizes the bad things rather than just accepts it hmm. yes yeah, he is and i'll be honest i was really really excited to find that he loved dickens but he wrote an article about someone else he wrote in defense of pg woodhouse did you know that oh my god yeah no, i did not know that. he was also a fan of and defender of woodhouse um i don't remember yeah. the details of the article but i think woodhouse was so politically naive that he you know and at one point like he was um he was on, <laughs> on nazi radio because he the, 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 i think he just didn't really understand you know and they, they say well, he was he's so go ahead yeah he was a not he was uh so woodhouse as we talked about him i'm a big fan of pg woodhouse he was a comic uh comic novelist he was very popular around the 20s and just like fitzgerald afterwards he'd be considered a well we're in the depression now. Why are you still writing about the 20s? So just like Fitzgerald, he also lost some popularity. People were against him. And they thought he was stuck in that jazz stage. But the reason why he was in uh, Nazi radio is because he lived in France. And basically the Nazis captured the area around him. And he had to basically it was kind of either go to a concentration camp. I'm not sure if it was quite as severe as that, but it was more or less Fiji. Uh, either go to a concentration camp or just go on the radio for us and make some uh, comedy bit on the on Nazi radio. And yes, I think you're right. Fiji Woodhouse was not interested in politics. don't think he was a Nazi, though. I don't think it was anything. No, it's no, it's not, it's not made clear. The, the point that Orwell makes is that he was so naive that he just didn't really know what he was doing. You know, he says P.G. Woodhouse right. literally lives in that in that 20s world that he writes about. Like he doesn't yeah, he know anything else, that. you know. Oh, but what, so why does he, I'm very curious, so what does he like about P.G. Woodhouse? Because I love P.G. Woodhouse, but I don't really see the connection between Orwell mm. and um, It's not even that there's a connection. I think he just liked the books and he, and he wanted to defend him because I, I guess P.G. Woodhouse was getting a bad rap. 
And for a while, people were saying, you know, well, he, you know, essentially did Nazi propaganda radio. So that's enough of a reason to get a bad rap, I guess, you know, and and Orwell was kind of saying, yeah, but he didn't know what he was doing. You know, he, he, he is Worcester. He is, you know, he's, he's living in in a, in a dream world. You got to give him, give him a buy ball on this one, you know? And they said that the world he was writing about, because because Woodhouse lived in America for a long time as well. And yeah. they said, look, the England that he was writing about didn't exist, but he didn't know that because yeah. he wasn't there. So he thought yeah. England was still like this. And the guy's just a dreamer, basically. You gotta you gotta let him go on this one. You know? <laughs> so while while always writing about England in, in the thirties and these empires, Woodhouse was still living in the jazz age. Pre, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think the main crux of the argument is, you know, Woodhouse is just so naive that he just doesn't realize that the world is changing around him, and he thinks he thinks he is still living in the jazz age. You know? Wow, that, that's 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 amazing. <laughs> yeah, man, we're gonna get to your book in a second, but first we have a two-minute uh, clip sent in from a fan. Oh wow! Hey, PJ and Dean, it's Casey from Casey's Bookshelf over on Instagram. I wanted to say happy anniversary and congratulations on a fantastic year of sharing your love of so many great books. I wish you both many, many more years of great reads and great conversations. I love the podcast and I have a book I want to share with you. I know you guys love the classics, so I wanted to share something a little more contemporary that may be a little outside of your wheelhouse. And that's Quan Berry's We Write Upon Sticks. The book's funny, fast-paced, and a good time from start to finish. The story takes place in Danvers, Massachusetts, which is where the Salem Witch Trials began in 1692. Fast forward nearly 300 years later, and we're in 1989, focusing on a a local high school women's uh, field hockey team who, despite a lot of heart and a lot of effort, just can't seem to win a game. That is until the summer before their senior year, the team's goalie decides to take matters into her own hands and calls upon some dark forces to help them out. And soon, one by one, the rest of the team joins in. It's honestly a really fun take on a subject matter that's been pretty deeply explored. The book's full of 80s iconography from movies to big hair, and it makes for a really, really fun read. And even though it's technically about a sports team, it never feels like a sports book. It's just a really interesting take on the witch trials. If you don't know, Quan Berry is an award-winning American poet. She grew up in the area the book is set in and even played for her local field hockey team. So she does a really great job of describing the game and the positions for those of us who may not be super familiar with the sport and does so in a very approachable and entertaining way that really feels like it adds to and is part of the story. Uh, And it never feels like you're reading like a rule book. I also happen to be pretty big on audiobooks, so if y'all or any of your listeners are into them too, this is a really great audiobook to check out. It's narrated by Isabel Keating, who is a spectacular voice actress who does an amazing job with this story. I highly recommend it. If y'all happen to check it out, uh, make sure to stop by my page and let me know what you think. Again, happy anniversary and congratulations. Bye! There we go. That was from Casey's wow. bookshelf on Instagram. Oh, that was, that was really lovely of you. Thanks for your lovely message. And I certainly want to check out that book. Well, that sounds just off my street, actually. Quanberry. Mm. Quanberry's We Ride Upon Sticks. Now, I think, come on, like, you know, I, 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 I saw you nodding your head. 80s, especially when you got to the 80s, the big hair. Yes. Like, so <laughs> I do. I, we do. We do love an 80s aesthetic. You know, I do, especially. I'm. It's my, my whole jam. <laughs> And I love the witches, especially. I have a witch in my novel as well. So, I mean, that just sounds mm-hmm. just up my street. We ride upon sticks. Nice. A strange thing happened there, though, that I didn't know if you could hear the clip or not. So for two minutes, I was just looking like, I don't know if you can hear this. Is he sitting in silence for two minutes? I don't know what's happening. 
Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, it was just, it was just. Oh. I'm, I'm, thank very much for that lovely message. Really appreciate that, and it's nice to hear from a fan. So, if anyone yeah. wants to say anything out, it's, anyone uh, can send it. Booksboys at hotmail.com. Send us a two minute clip. Tell us what you've been reading, and you know we are we'll we'll play it on the on the radio. Indeed. EJ, wow. what have you been reading? So then, I've been reading one of my favorite authors, Haruki Murakami. Mm-hmm. Who you know yourself? What I talk about when I talk about running. Have you ever heard of this book before? I, I've, I've read some Murakami that you've recommended before, but I have not heard of this one. No, I've not read it. So this one is essentially a memoir talking about sports. It could be considered a sport book, although I think it's more, for me, it's more of a philosophical treatise on running, per se. So mm. what is it about? It's about um, Haruki Murakami is a Japanese novelist. His most famous novel is Norwegian Woods, which turned into a movie as well. He's famous for these surreal, some would say postmodern, some would say pop fiction novels. But uh, I, I love him because it's it's always about these lonely characters who are essentially lost and sounds a bit like a like a Norwegian character, except it's always very mm. surreal what's happening to them. So talking cats and you know parallel universes and all kinds mm. of things. But what I talk about when I talk about running is essentially about his experience with jogging and running, which he's been doing since 1982. And he did this because Haruka Murakami was initially a jazz bar owner going late to bed and just writing in the wee hours of the the dawn. Mm. And his health was basically going down the drains, as you can imagine. So he decided to both become a full-time novelist, which is the third novel, A Wild Sheep's, Sheep's Chase, and at the same time, he realized he could only do this if he physically came into, got into shape. So he started jogging. So he started a jogging routine simultaneously while he started his quite strict um, novelist routine. And Haruka Murakami has always had a very kind of, very strict routine. He wakes up at 4 a.m., starts writing for, for about six hours straight. Then he, does, then he jogs and he swims, goes early to bed. Uh, very kind of, yeah, for me that's very Japanese actually. So, mm. and he talks about just well, what what makes him a successful runner, but also what makes him a successful novelist in the sense that this routine works for him. So it's essentially um, it's very similar to the concept, similar to Stephen King's on on writing. So it's a novelist talking about novel writing, but he's talking about running at the same time and how it helps him. And it's it's very readable, as is all Murakami's books. It's very engaging. Um, it just talks about what he what he feels like when he's running and what sensations going to say what's the philosophy of running why do joggers run and i i really wanted to read this one because i've been getting back into running i've always enjoyed jogging and running and essentially i just want to tell a brief part of it which is he talks about running and people ask him what he thinks about when he's running and he says he well he doesn't think about anything if it's if he's feeling good, he thinks a bit about feeling good. If okay. he feels cold, he thinks about the cold a bit. He feels so he's not hot. using it to you know philosophize or anything like that. He's just in the moment. Exactly, he's in the moment. What he does, he runs because he wants to create a void inside of him. First of all, he runs because it's what his body naturally wants. And second of all, he thinks the benefit of running for a novice is not to get inspired. He says he doesn't particularly get inspired or have deep philosophical thoughts. 
but it's actually to empty the mind. And that's the way I feel, honestly, when I run, mm. I feel I'm not particularly thinking about anything at all. I'm just kind of letting all the head stuff go. It's particularly if I had a very, a very head brainy sort of day using my head a lot. It's kind of letting it go because especially if you want to be creative and you put too much into your head, I find nothing's going to come out. It's all jammed. It's all mm. energy stuck. And basically by running, you just, you just kind of, I imagine always you're running and you're slowly, you know, throwing a bit of that un, unnecessary thoughts away, just kind of throwing away and making your head empty again. So that when you sit back down again, you're ready for some new ideas to come in. And this novel is about that and about the, um, about what it feels like for him to be running and then writing. And he talks about, he talks about um, also, and there's an interesting chapter here about what are the necessary qualities to become a, not a successful novelist, but just a, just a novelist, a, a person who writes on a consistent basis. And let me just get it for you now, Dean. Hold mm-hmm. on a second. Put this one out. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. So um, this is a very interesting part about about the, about the discipline of novel writing. So I'm just quoting. In every interview, I'm asked, "What's the most important quality a novelist has to have?" It's pretty obvious: talent. No matter how much enthusiasm and effort you put into writing, if you totally lack literary talent, you can forget about being a novelist. This is more of a prerequisite than a necessary quality. If we don't have any fuel, even the best car won't run. The problem with talent, though, is that in most cases, the person involved can't control its amount or quality. You might find the amount isn't enough and you want to increase it, or you might try to be frugal to make it last longer. But in either case, do things work out that easily? Talent has a mind of its own and welds up when it wants to, and once it dries up, that's it. If I'm asked what the next most important quality is for novice, that's easy too. Focus. And then he talks about, in this part, just to summarize, he talks about that focus is absolutely necessary, but only able, you're only able to have focus if you don't have pain. And the problem is he talks that if, if novelists, they sit too long, they're going to develop a type of pain or discomfort, and that actually will distract you. It won't sure. allow you to have the, the second quality. Um. Yes, and the next quality he talks about, the third, is endurance. Being able to sit down three or four hours and give it all your attention, similar to focus, but actually being able to just stand that because he talks Mm. about sometimes it being painful. He also mentions, for example, uh, the mystery writer Raymond Chandler. Uh, Raymond Chandler actually uh, sat down every day for a few hours, even if nothing came up, just because it became a routine. So essentially, right. essentially, this is successful habits to acquire for, for novelists. So he talks about, and he talks about that, that you don't need to have talent as an, sorry, excuse me. You need to have a certain amount of talent as a novelist, but it's not enough, to be honest, because we don't have talent. If you have talent but no focus and endurance, it's just wasted. It's just going to yeah. be wasted. But if you have little talent, that's still okay, as long as you've got a hell of focus and endurance and you start practicing. So he talks about writing down and practicing every day, it should be a routine. 
Mm-hmm. But Peach, I want to ask you a question because you, men- you mentioned this idea of talent. Um, you know, there's a certain pot of talent and it will eventually run out. I mean, we, we're, we're creative types. You know, we both do artistic kinds of things. We, I, I paint, you make music and, and, and poetry and everything. Do, do you feel that like, you know, at some point that's it? Like, do you think that you're going to run out of talent? Like, do you agree with that sentiment? No, uh, I don't think so. Um, don't think we're going to necessarily run out in, in town. But he says it could happen. And it has happened to some novelists where they just didn't write again. And you're kind of left wondering. Mm. I can't really imagine that, but it has happened to a few. I find it especially with artists that start off very, very young. And, they're, and, they, and they've really produced some massive, massively great uh, novels at a young age. But then they run out a few or just the stuff they write later is not, not as good. It doesn't seem to have the same, the same, mm, same appeal. And, but he talks about that in the novels. I'm just summarizing some briefly. He talks mm. about these, these young novels, novelists especially, that do that. But because they don't have a routine, they kind of get lazy. They get slack. And he essentially talks about the power. He's always talking about the power between muscle building, especially in running, and a novelist. And he compares it to. So when you got to jog, do a marathon, then you got to have endurance. you got to have focus. Uh, and he talks about it leaves out the talent you see he says jogging is good to practice the the next two things because talent is a prerequisite but it's not enough and especially if you've got little talent he says himself he has little talent he, he doesn't consider himself a he talks about there are dickens and shakespeare's in life but there's not most novelists need to really work on their endurance and focus yeah and i, and I do see that a lot where you have you have them for a while being stellar in their in their production but then they, they lose momentum, I suppose. Even Murakami, I, I, I love the man, but I don't feel that he's quite, the last few books I've read from him, the more recent ones, I don't feel are quite as powerful. Which as is the, the one that I've read? Kafka on the Shore, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. Kafka on the Shore. I love that one, actually. It's good, but his writing style is a little unusual for me. I, 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 yeah? I don't know. Did, yeah, I think so. Did you read Hardboard Wonderland? Is, did you also read that one? Not yet, one? no. That one is absolutely my, my favorite novel. And that's right. quite an early novel. Um, yeah. But he talks about, honestly, I can see Murakami. I've read his first three novels. For example, I've read almost all of his novels. But the first three novels, the first two novels he wrote, he wrote it at, um, you know, spor- sporadically while he was working at Jasper at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., before going to sleep. And then when he changes routine, he completely changes routine and he, he got up at 4 a.m. and started writing. Got up, he didn't go to bed. So it's like, mm. The difference between waking up and writing is very different to going just before sleep. I isn't, find- isn't this a similar routine that you followed when you were writing? Like you were getting up really early and working um, and before doing yeah, your yeah. exercises and things, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So I, um, I also have I follow a similar routine. I also tried out uh, midday writing. It also worked for me for a while. But, uh, sorry, but the thing is, I always usually, almost always write after I sleep, after a big sleep. Uh, nighttime uh, but it was my first novel actually I was just it was my first novel I wasn't waking up early it was my first novel I was writing after having a siesta at 1pm mm-hmm. and then yeah, PJ up, is in is, is in uh, Grand Canaria so he's allowed to have a siesta he's in yeah, Spanish land have a siesta. <laughs> and then the daughters of his writing it's, it's an ideal life yes I'm very privileged um, but I suppose Murakami living in Tokyo is not really a thing you, you do there so I can completely get it that he wakes mm. up early in the morning. It also works uh, for me. It's a different writing style. But I suggest if you're becoming if you're becoming a writer and especially in the, the discipline, this is a great 
kind of novelist discipline book or at least recommendation. And I completely agree with physical activity doing that before writing. But before mm-hmm. writing, really kind of tire yourself out in some sense. He talks about pushing himself. He uh, is actually kind of, he's a bit insane where it comes. And I can totally see wow. that with his routine. He's always pushing himself. He actually says, he, his, his massage therapist says, you, you, sh- you know, what are you doing? You, you should be cramped up to the eyeballs. I can't believe you've got <laughs> so much endurance. So he actually does have wow. a lot of endurance. So I'm really enjoying this book. Read it. It's a memoir. He also talks about his life, which in Murakami is very reclusive. So it's actually nice to hear a bit about his life. Mm. And it's just a great read, it's, um, especially if you're a Murakami fan or if you're a jogging fan or if you're into philosophy. This is that, more than anything is this philosophy. Or if you're an aspiring novelist or novelist trying to get some successful novelist habits. Heinrich. There we go. Like yourself. There we go. Brilliant. Uh, by the way, speaking of speaking of you being in uh, in, in Spain, so I was in Madrid uh, this month and I, I send you oh. copious uh, books that I, I bought. I, I packed my little rucksack because I only went for a few days and I only brought a change of clothes. And that this, little rucksack was packed with a dozen Spanish books, very heavy, but I didn't think I was going to get them through the airport. The, the amusing thing is uh, I talked to you just before you left and, and wrote to you like a big list, a big shopping list. Basically. I said, Dean, look, you're going to Spain. You got to Got to get these. Got to get these novels and these. I got most of them, but I didn't think I would. <laughs> you know, you said to them, "Look, I can only buy two books." And then the next day, you said, <laughs> "All these books plus more from the same authors." So I'm glad you take my, um, you know, recommendations so seriously that you even buy more books. And, and yeah, and, but, and, but PJ, I had no room in my suitcase for the Spanish ham. So how did you get them back so much- to? How did you get them back to Ireland? Did you sneak them through uh, the black market or something? Yeah, because I only brought hand luggage and I just had this little <laughs> rucksack full of books <sighs> bulging from all the seams, I, you know? I, I, used, to the same, I used to do the same, though. Uh, I, I, yeah, when, yeah. Uh, essentially, I actually still do the same. I also put them into pockets, jack, jacket pockets, like stuffed them anywhere when we stuffed these books and I had always to, tried I mean, to make it look light. I had to wear three layers in the airport because yeah. I didn't have any room in my bag for my jumper or my coat. That's what I did. I, I used to, all, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, after, I, I've tried to get rid of that habit because I love books. But I just thought, oh no, I just, I can't because it was getting insane. Every every time I traveled, I just had three coats full of, of books <laughs> and and it's all nonsense really. Isn't it? It's ridiculous. Uh, oh, wow. Did I tell you I'm going back to Madrid in four weeks? Yeah, you told me that. Yeah, so God, I guess I'm going to do like it all it. over again. This time I need and to did, leave room for the ham. And and did you love the Museo de Prado? The art yes, museum? I loved the I loved the Prado Museum. So I'm going to try to do another one um, when I go back. And guys, if you want to see my trip around Madrid on our Instagram, there's photos of all the bookshops I visited. I did a little yeah, awesome. a little hunt of different of all the bookshops in Madrid, including the Benito Perez Galdos uh, bookshop. Oh my God! You're you're your chap, your friend. <laughs> Indeed, the basically the Dickens of Spain, Benito Perez Galdos. So, guys, yeah, if you're in Madrid, uh, check out the bookshop. If in case you're wondering, we're not actually sponsored by the Madrid Tourism Board, although I think <laughs> I think after this great sellout, they should give us a few they thousand should, quids. Guys, come on. Just we're not sponsored job. by them, but you know who we are sponsored by this month? Uh, it's the Dickens Office of Circumlocution. So this is the office for not getting it done. So if there's ever something that you don't want to get done, but you want to go through a very lengthy bureaucratic bureaucratic process of form filling and fee paying and stamping and bringing it to one clerk, to another clerk, to another clerk, only for several years later to eventually give up because it's bankrupted you and you've not achieved anything, then uh, the office of circumlocution, guys, how not to get it done. What an investment. (laughs) Do it, guys. (laughs) <laughs> We're going to take a 30 second break and play an ad from a podcast called The Paranoid Strain, uh, Friends of Ours, and we'll be back in a second. 
Hi, I'm Fearful Jesuit, host of The Paranoid Strain, a show that explains conspiracy theories to normal people. Every episode is carefully researched, fully scripted, and incorporates interviews, audio clips, original music, and a bunch of nonsense to explain the history, impact, and bizarre beliefs related to one conspiracy topic at a time. We're doing an extensive series on secret societies. You know, the Knights Templar, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and we'd love to have you along for the ride. New episodes drop every two. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Weeks wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>